All right, welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Podcast, which I realized just now is listed as the Brain Food Show with brain food as one word on iTunes. And I've always introducing it, which is probably terrible for our searchability. Like every time people be like, where is this brain food show? And you do, if you do type in brain food as two separate words, it does not show up. So <laughs> good start. Uh, so this is the brain food one word pod, uh, show, the brain food one word show. Uh, feel free to check us out on iTunes. Although if you're listening to this, you probably already did. So that's great. Or wherever you listen to your podcasts, I assume all of their search engines are just as bad. Uh, today, it's a continuation of our space series, which is going to be long because I'm reading our notes that David puts together for each episode. And over on the right, we use uh, Google Docs and you have this scroll bar and it kind of, you know, it slowly goes down as you scroll through a document. I'm having my morning coffee this morning, looking through the documents, blah, 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 and reading, reading, reading. And the scroll bar is kind of going down real slow. And so I scroll down and I scroll down. And I scroll. This thing's thirty nine pages, or it was this morning. Has it has it grown? Uh, and the Most original, just... the original that we've already covered, it was like twenty some pages, I think, or fifteen or twenty. So yeah, I, I got carried away. I have more, but I stopped. I cut myself off. I note the end of today's episode is marked in uh, all caps by. Let's stop here for today because it was it was it was like forty five minutes of reading through in my head. So <laughs> it took a while to put together. So, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so essentially, we're starting off. Uh, it's space, like I said. We're starting off with uh, astronauts scratching itches. How it works, yeah. I assume, in a spacesuit rather than just in the. Yes. In, I imagine scratching an itch if you're just floating around naked in like the ISS. Quite easy, I'm sure. We're, yeah, it's like oh, I can reach all of these places. <laughs> Um, but should we start off with a little bit of housekeeping? Talk about uh, reviews yeah. and. I guess the other stuff we always talk of follow up. Oh, I think one of them is kind of a review slash follow up, right? Yeah, it's kind of interesting as well, I think. So I'll read the review and then we can talk a little bit about it. I know you did some digging, so uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'll just read that. It's from Colin SCE. And in the review, he uh, he states, I just listened to the Benz episode. Great job, but you missed that Daimler and Benz formed Mercedes. You point out that Daimler is still around. They sold their part of Chrysler, though, and don't point out that Mercedes is Daimler. When Daimler and Benz teamed up for his portion of the name, Daimler used Mercedes to appease an investor who had wanted the car named after his daughter. And then he writes, do a follow-up, which I say that like that because it's got an exclamation point, and I'm sure it's it's more like, do a follow-up. But yeah. uh, whenever I see an exclamation point and no smiley face, I assume it's aggression. I feel like it did mention the Mercedes thing because we were like talking about uh, Benz and all of this stuff. And as I, I think I said something about that company being around today as Mercedes or something, but mm-hmm. uh, we definitely didn't mention all the Daimler stuff. So, so no. what, what did you find out? Yeah, the uh, the businessman diplomat in question was named Emil. Would you say Jelinek or Jelinek? Probably Jelinek. What do you think? Uh, where is he from? He's German. Uh, no, I he's think French. French, but uh, yeah. So would you do the double L? How would you do that double L? Dude, you're asking me like an author- I'm an authority, so I'm going to answer. I do like know an you. I do know you. You took French at one point. I t- please, I took French for like six years, which uh, says nothing, because really it was that it was that yeah. high uh, high school, or as we would call it, secondary school, six yeah. years, or dude, maybe even longer. I mean, I really learned French for years, but it was always that half an hour a week that you don't really care about, yeah. and uh, yeah. yeah, my uh, my only my only poor grade at uh, GCSEs, which are the exams we take when we were 16, was French. Uh, mm-hmm. Language is not my forte. Uh, I, I, I'd I say like Emile Jelinek. 
Yeah. But, um, All right. or Emil Jalanek, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, so his oh, daughter. No. And there's another name. <laughs> yeah, his daughter was named Mercedes Adrian Ramona Manuela Jelinek or whatever. Mercedes is the important part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was a, among other, he was a diplomat, uh, avid race car. He was a, you know, race car enthusiast and he loved to race his various things, but all the cars were really bad. So he approached uh, Daimler Motorin Gesellschaft. Gesellschaft. That one I do know because that means Gesellschaft. company in German. Oh, right there. When I was studying European law, it was always, uh, you know, someone and someone against blah, 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 Gesellschaft. Oh, see, that this is, an, I, I thought it was three names, but I can see now it's just like Daimler Motor Company, right? Yep. Gesellschaft Daimler Motor Company. All right. So, uh, yeah, so he agreed to buy 36 of these and he gave lots of input on the design based on, you know, his racing experience and stuff on how... I feel like we should slot it. Obviously, he's a successful businessman. Yes, I'll uh, custom designer buy 36 of your race cars. Yeah, and a diplomat and all that. So he was he was quite up, yeah. up, uppity in society. So, uh, yeah, so and when he ordered the cart from them, he stated... Um, I don't want a car for today or tomorrow. It will be the car of the day after tomorrow. I don't know why I said it in a posh British accent rather than I don't want a car for today or tomorrow. It will be the car for the day after tomorrow. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> there you go. I got to fit in some racism early in this episode. So. <laughs> Is that more of like a culturism? Oh, definitely. I am just making fun. But everyone makes fun of the French, so it's okay, right? I feel as a British person, it's it's more of my duty to make fun of the French because uh, you know. Have you ever seen? There's this channel Lindy Beige where he yeah, yeah. he rags on the French all the time. It's hilarious. Definitely worth checking out there. Yeah, that's a good channel if you like uh, if you like ballroom dancing and um, you know war and weapons and his you know that history and stuff. He can yes. monologue better than anyone I have ever heard. Like he will just turn on the camera and do a straight like thirty minute monologue on this really in depth history stuff. Really accurate. And no cuts anywhere, no cut, you know, jump jump cuts or anything, just straight through. And it's all interesting and great. It's pretty extraordinary. I could barely get through a sentence without yeah. having to cuss. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, I did that wrong. Exactly. I've always been quite impressed with his abilities there. But um, yeah. 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 Anyways, anyways, so the, the resulting car was the Mercedes 35, which was one of the first. It's considered one of the first modern cars just because of the um, various uh, improvements it had in it, uh, named after his daughter. And uh, then the 35 horsepower engine. So... That is where that came into play. And um, yeah, actually, he, he he had a practice of naming a lot of things after his daughter. Uh, he just mm-hmm. seemed to really like the name, including he named himself after his daughter. He took on that as a, his new surname. He changed his name uh, to Emil, Emil Jelinek Mercedes, noting... This is probably the first time that a father has taken his daughter's name. He says that like... I'm a hero. It's like, dude, you just changed your last name to your daughter's name. I mean, yeah, it, a little weird. Kind, kind of weird. Yeah, rather yeah. than like, <laughs> and he named like his. He had an estate. He named after that Mercedes, and then he started going after this by E.J. Mercedes was his his little thing. And um, yeah, so that that car it sold- sounds almost like something Trump would say. Like, <laughs> look at this amazing thing I did. It's like, it's just, it's fairly ordinary. It's kind of bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, sort of weird. And uh, it's not really clear from some of the accounts, like whether he actually really just really adored his daughter or if he just really liked the name. Um, mm-hmm. Because there was some some talk of like, he kind of neglected his daughter, actually. Well, in a way that would kind of make more sense if he, he just was really into Mercedes. So it yeah. wasn't, you know, naming his daughter. He didn't name himself after his daughter. He named himself after this name he really liked. This cool name, which I think it means like mercies or something from the Spanish something. You know how the, the Catholic, the uh, Our Lady of Mercy, but then the Spanish have um, Mary of the of Mercies, I think it is, but in Spanish. Did not know. 
Yeah, and that that's uh, that I think is where the name derives, and then originally from like Latin or something, which meant mercy. Follow up on a follow up. Yeah, I can't remember the specific details, but it's vague recollection. Anyways, uh, Daimler, uh, the company they they really liked, or that that car sold so well that they just started uh-huh. branding all their cars Mercedes. Um, and actually, today you wanted to to thinking they were, they weren't necessarily have a presence in Europe, but in fact, they're headquartered in Germany, and Daimler AG is a seventy billion dollar company. And they are the 13th largest car manufacturer in the world and the largest truck manufacturer in the world. They own a ton of brands like Mercedes, of course, and then Smart Automobile, Detroit Diesel and Freightliner, which is huge, at least in the U.S. for like uh, big trucks, you know, that whole semis, that whole things. So just I feel like maybe we talked about this before, but when we talk about Daimler as a company, is mm-hmm. it also a brand? Do you have Daimler's? No, there in was the U.S. There was for a time like Daimler Daimler Chrysler, but you would probably just call mm-hmm. them Chrysler. Uh, but yeah, like like Colin SE pointed out, they 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 sold off their part of the Chrysler brand. I think like it was like a decade ago or something like that. Okay, so so yeah, you know, you don't have like a Daimler, you wouldn't call. But yeah, there is just tons of there are tons of things owned by Daimler that you would call that you would be very familiar with the brand. They own a ton of a ton of companies related to cars and things. Oh, yeah. Like I, I just because I thought ah, maybe if I see like the logo, I'll recognize it. And then I, so I did a Google image search and I see Daimler and I just got a lot of pictures of really nice looking Mercedes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mercedes is probably their, their best known. But yeah, uh, as for the daughter, if people want to know what, whatever happened to her, she married one Baron Karl von Schlosser in 1909. Yeah. But unfortunately for her and her father, uh, World War One was not a good time for their family. Uh, they uh, so he got accused of being a spy for the Germans. Uh, I don't think uh-huh. uh, I don't think that he actually was, or there was really much in the way of evidence. But whatever they thought he was, and he got all his um, his estates stripped from him, and uh, a lot of his fortune was gone. And then he also had a fi- falling out with Daimler, so he could no longer he for a time he had like an exclusive right to resell a lot of their cars. So he would mm-hmm. race and kind of show them off, and then sell them like a dealership type thing. So he's making a lot of money for that, but then he had a falling out with Daimler, so that went that money went away. Sorry, this is the the her new husband or the father. Oh, sorry, this was, was this was Emil, the original. So, so ah, her, okay, yeah. her her family fortune basically went away, and uh, all his estates uh-huh. were taken from him. So they didn't even have that after the war. And then her husband also, uh, I'm not sure what his wealth was before, but uh, after the war, by the end of the war, he was pretty much impoverished too. And they were, uh, yeah, they were completely impoverished by the end of the war. And then she, he, her husband took a job as a civil mm-hmm. servant to get by. And then for whatever reason, they got divorced not long after. And she married another impoverished person by the name of uh, Baron Rudolf Weigel, who was an artist. Dude, do you think his name was Baron or is that his title? I was thinking it has to be his title, right? The impoverished Baron. <laughs> it feels so sad. Especially like after World War One, you might have a title, but your family is, you know, used to be prominent but not so much anymore i know right? i know it's just yeah. like it's, it's a shame that the baron doesn't have like an estate and a vineyard and i mean i don't know if it's a shame that's probably not the right not the right word but it doesn't feel like hello i'm baron do you have any spare change <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah and he was a sculptor and uh, and uh, it, it didn't uh, in the end he died not long after their marriage and she also did not last much longer Dying a few years later of cancer at the age of 39 so happy ending there well that's depressing <laughs> yeah I was like, hey, the space series, we're not talking about war anymore. Hey, look, death. Hey, look, World War One in ruining, you know. Destroying economies and people. And then also, hey, cancer, why not? That just not enough misery. <laughs> that was a nice follow-up. Well, I mean, I just complained about how depressing it was, but it was a good, 
story. <laughs> is it, I like you know, that. interesting. I feel like people don't know a lot about the the Mercedes. Like, yeah, you know, some people might have known the, the thing about the being named after the daughter, but who was the daughter? You know, right? Are we are we wrapped up with Daimler? Yeah, yep, that's all done for okay. there. Thank you. Uh, what was the chap's name? Colin. Thank you, Colin, for that. Appreciate it. And thank you, David, for digging deep. Okay, shall I, shall I read? Uh, I didn't see this before. Did you add that later or did I just miss that? Uh, I, I probably added it later. Okay, I got Elder Cat. Eldar Cat? Elder, Eldar Cat? Uh, on our forum. Yeah, he's got two comments on, the, on this little uh, intro. Oh, I see that now. Yeah. Okay. Okay, let's do comment number one. Uh, this is at our forum, forum.todayfoundout.com, if you want to come along and say hi. I've been absent from there for a while. I should probably log in and say hi. We did set that up for a reason, and then I'd, I'm i I'm busy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a guess, I am. Uh, I, I'm going to read the comment anyway. My wife is the training coordinator for our city. Nine, do you say that like 911? Yeah. Is that what you'd say? 911 Dispatch Center. She recently saw me watching a TIFO video and said, which is Today I Found Out, which is our channel on YouTube. You can check it out. Uh, and she said, that's the guy from our training, really, training video, and sent me the video. Turns out she shows the Today I Found Out 911 video on the first day of training to every potential 911 dispatcher. I thought you might enjoy knowing that. Yeah, I did enjoy well, knowing that. That I, I do enjoy knowing that just now. That yeah. is... That is, I think that's, I mean, we get emails quite often about, I show this, I show this to my class at school, or mm -hmm. I show this on when we're talking about this subject or this. That's a new one for me. That is yeah. cool. I went back and watched that video. It was a good one. Although it was in the old style of uh, where it was in that tr transition period where you introed it, but then just went to the straight audio and uh, yeah, but yeah, it was a good one. At some point, we've got to do a follow-up video. I think maybe when I've got this new set set up and all of that stuff done. It'd be interesting to do like a video on the evolu evolution of TIFO, when it was just yeah. originally just voiceover, fairly bland, like, welcome to Today I Found Out. Today. You even had something. that kind of voice where you were like, kind of that, uh, I don't know what you would call that operator voice. like the, you know? Yeah, well, it was, I, I did audiobooks for so long that yeah. this was my transition phase of like, oh yeah, you gotta like be a bit more lively in the YouTube videos because mm -hmm. that's what people expect. Whereas with audiobooks, it's like, the book about 9-11 dispatch centers by Simon. Mm -hmm. Introduction. <laughs> it's kind of the, you know, it's a more like, uh, yeah. I don't want to say professional because I think, you know, what we do is professional in its own sense, but, you know, more uh, eh, smooth or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it doesn't Casual. matter. Casual. Yeah, yeah. Less, less, more, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, Elder Cat, second comment. Uh, was this also on the forum? Yeah. Uh Probably might have been the email, uh, but either way, several people wanted to know uh, about your ranch experience, and this was it was uh, one. Okay, yeah, I, I, and I, I I wrote underneath this vital ranch update in all caps. Uh, so let me follow up. You'd be surprised how many people have emailed or posted about it. I, I am I am I am surprised about this. Uh, let me let me let me see. Uh, so uh, Elder Cat says again. I really want to hear the continuation of the ranch conversation. Wow, really, guy. <laughs> Was Simon able to eat the ranch dressing at the restaurant David recommended when he was in town? If so, did he like it? I could tell, we could tell this story. Um, so this was really quite surprising to me because you, was this in Gold Bar? Uh, kind of right next to Gold Bar in Sultan, Washington. So this is where you lived for a while. Yeah, Gold, Gold Bar is awesome. But it's really weird how you have like different expectations of things in your mind. Because mm -hmm. I always imagine like Gold Bar, it's like, I guess because I'm, I'm dumb. I always imagine it like, I imagine like if you mention a town, I imagine an English town, even though that's completely unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine like there's a high street, there's shops, there's all of this stuff. But what one gold bar was really 
like spread out, which I guess is an American thing. Mm -hmm. And so we just stop at the side of the road. There's this pizza restaurant, just kind of like there's not other stuff around. And you're like, this is it. And like, this is the legendary ranch place. (laughs) And so we go inside and it was a ranch pizza and ranch dressing. Chicken bacon ranch, yeah. Okay, so I will let me talk to the ranch experience because this was uh, we'd had ranch before. I'd only had ranch in Subway before, which uh, in in Europe, oh, which so is bad. awful. It is bad. You yeah. don't, you know, it's like yeah. honey mustard is the way to go always, or yeah. just don't go to Subway. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's another great option. <laughs> but if you're in a pinch, uh, so that was my experience of ranch. Then we went to maybe it was Buffalo Wild Wings, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, that was. Uh, TVs everywhere, which was bizarre, but great wings. I guess it is a sports bar. Uh, and we had the ranch there. And I liked this. And I was like, this is this is fairly solid. We went to this place. And don't get me wrong. It was good. The ranch pizza was good. Mm-hmm. But the ranch was intense. Yeah. Like, it's... it was very rich. Yeah. And I like rich foods. Like, I'm a steak, pizza, kind of... Maybe I don't have a super refined palate. I just like it to taste real good. <laughs> and this ranch was even... It was good, but it was too much for me. It was like it was I could, definitely like, heavy, heavy on the buttermilk, which is uh, delicious. I feel like, like no kidding. It was it's like um, it's like we were discussing how you know you have you have your different beers and stuff, and your different yeah. and some are just like stronger, and you kind of got to build up your taste, your palate for it before you you can't just go full full into it. You know, you can't go full IPA without like you know getting into lagers first. And, yeah. Yeah, so I, I got to work on my ranch tolerance. And then you, and you we had the Red Robin later, which was, you liked that one, I feel like. Red Robin? That was in oh, California. Oh, yeah, the, uh, that's right. Had that burger. That burger was amazing. Red Robin, solid burger. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then the unlimited fries, which they never came and filled up again. <laughs> and my, my thing with anything unlimited except for diet soft drinks is I will, and you know when they bring it to your table or whatever, it's I won't have it. I won't ask for it. So it's like, if mm-hmm. they come... I will take more fries as much as they give me. But my discipline is, if they don't come, I'm not going to hustle them down and be like, hey, where are my extra fries? Because that's a bad way to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my ranch follow-up. Mm-hmm. Any, any, any ranch follow-up from you? My re- what was your reaction to my ranch? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I, 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 I totally understand the, the reaction to the pizza place. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I still say it's like the best ranch out there. I understand your reaction, but you're wrong. <laughs> Totally Your wrong. opinion is wrong. <laughs> uh, Bailey, Bailey Davenport, she's got a bit more ranch follow-up. She, she suggests that I have something called Hidden Valley's Buttermilk Ranch Packets, which you combine mm-hmm. with mayonnaise. And apparently this is something they do at many restaurants. And you can easily spot the taste once you have it. So she says I could get this. My reaction here is, but Bailey, where do I get said packets? I mean, you could, I could, I'm sure I could ship them from the States or you could pop them in an envelope. Yeah. Uh, however, good news, my vital ranch update. I've mentioned previously on this show that uh, in Prague, where I live in Czech Republic, there's quite a, there's quite a UK, US uh, expat community. And so there is close to my previous office, a UK, US, like uh, grocery store, corner shop sort of thing. And they sell like from my side of the thing, they'll sell things like Marmite and dairy milk chocolate and Walker's Crisps and Crunchy Nut Corn Flakes. Do you have those? Mm, Kellogg's Crunchy Nut Corn Flakes? Probably. I'm not sure. Pretty amazing until you realize that, I don't want to spoil it. Next time you're here, I'll get you some Crunchy Nut Corn Flakes mm-hmm. and you can tell me how delicious they are and then I'll point something out to you and you won't enjoy them anymore. <laughs> okay. um, so that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this store, 
I looked previously for ranch, and you know what I found last time I was next, uh, the mm-hmm. previous just last week when I was there. Mm-hmm. Ranch, ranch dressing. Nice. So uh, I didn't yeah. buy it because I was already buying a bunch of things, and you gotta get, you gotta get was... uh, make some buffalo buffalo wings and dip in. It's delicious. All right, man, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to pop there. I think the reason I didn't see it before is because whenever anything's imported and it doesn't have the whatever the, I'm sure there's some ISO standard or whatever you call it for like Mm -hmm. uh, ingredients labels. So Mm -hmm. anything imported from outside of Europe has a big sticker slapped on the side with Mm -hmm. a list of ingredients in the local language and like seven others. And I'm sure some regulatory stuff. And it was slapped right over the front that says ranch dressing. So I was like, oh, good. Okay, there it is. Anyway, um, that's my vital ranch update. Very important we got that done. Maybe we should just skip over any other reviews. I appreciate everyone who's, because just for time's sake, this is already a long episode. We are already 20 minutes into this thing, and we uh, yeah. we promised stuff about astronauts scratching itches, or not scratching itches. Uh, uh, so I would just say, if you, uh, if you left us a review, thank you very much. We are having a little contest. Uh, we are hoping to get to 200 reviews on uh, iTunes, but also other platforms as well. When we get to that 200 review points on iTunes, we are going to look through all of the reviews that we have on the major platform, podcasting platforms, and then draw a name out of a hat, which I'm sure will be more realistically a random number generator picking yeah. someone. From an Excel spreadsheet. An Excel spreadsheet, and we're going to give them a uh, a $200 Amazon gift voucher to mark the 200 reviews. If you already left one in the past, you're automatically included. Congratulations, you might win something randomly. So let's let's move on to our astronauts. Yeah, so starting, how do do astronauts scratch an itch in a spacesuit? Answering all the hard-hitting questions here. Yeah, today I found (laughs) out brain food famous for it. Maybe this will be used in the uh, NASA training video in the future. Be like, hello, have you wondered about peeing in space? Here's a video to brief you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Troy McClure. So yeah, so for the um, the 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 itches that you have all over your body, uh, so anything mm. not your face, uh, retired astronaut um, Clayton Anderson, he tells, "You shake, rattle, and roll, baby." That's uh, that spiked my audio. <laughs> I just saw it clip like that. <laughs> uh, that's the only thing that you can really do to alleviate that itch. Hopefully between the incredibly bulky and stiff suit itself and the liquid cooling garment you are wearing beneath the suit, you can wiggle your body enough to scratch that itch. Simple. Question answered. Yeah, done. No, but then you, you have the all critical uh, face. What do you do if it's on your face? And this, they, they just get resourceful, basically. So, so there's, a, there's a couple little things. So first, uh, when, they, when they're wearing their, their uh, helmet and everything, they have something that is kind of um, called the Snoopy cap. You've probably seen in like the, the pictures when they're yeah. not wearing the helmet, that little thing with like the, yeah. Didn't know that was called a Snoopy cap until yeah. now. That's kind of what they nicknamed it. And the, so it has an earphone and earphones and microphone on it. And so they'll often try to, you know, if they can reach it with the microphone, whatever the itch is, they'll kind of try to scratch that way. And it's, that's the bad part of that is sometimes it'll knock the microphone out of the right position. So it makes communication not as good after that. So uh, if that doesn't work also on the inside, and this is probably something most people don't know is there is there's a little like um, it's, it's called a Valsalva device for popping your ears, basically. But it's just a little foam piece that's kind of in the shape of, to, of just kind of to plug your nostrils at the same time. Like if you just put your nose right on it, uh, just plugs your nose. And everything, huh. and then they just blow, and it pops their ears or whatever to just equalization, because obviously they can't use their fingers or whatever. So it just helps if they're having trouble popping their ears. I love the fact it's called a Valsalva device rather than you know that sounds like uh, activate the Valsalva device yeah. rather than uh, use the ear poppy nose thingy. Yeah, the little piece of foam that gets not all over it. Use that. Yeah, 
And that that is the downside to this is if they probably used it and then he might have a little like snot oh, no, on it no, when no. they're scratching their itch. But, you know, it's like desperate times. Call for desperate measures. If you got an itch, you can't get rid of it. Um, oh, you could just lick it off first. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's an option. Uh, then uh, then uh, if all that doesn't work, because there is still places on the face that can't be reached, the ingenious people at NASA figured out that you can just stick a piece of Velcro on the backside of the glass. Um, and they, they found the good position was where there's this like little feed port flap that's kind of um, when, the, when the pressure is in the suit, it closes and then not it'll equalize with the outside pressure um, when when you know, when there is outside pressure and everything. So, so they put a little piece of Velcro, they just stick it right on there and it's just in a good position uh, to, to just scratch other itches um, around the face if they can. Huh. Um, so yeah. And then uh, Apollo 17 astronaut Harry Schmidt noted of this. Everybody seemed to agree that you needed that Velcro. Yeah. This, this does seem like a lot of thinking to something that, I mean, I've just been thinking about it now. Because, I mean, I, I'm literally running a live experiment as we're talking. I've got a slight itch to the side <laughs> of my right knee. And I'm like, I'm just not going to scratch that. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I'm, I'm, you know, compared to an astronaut, I'm, I'm sure my self-discipline is fairly weak. And I'm like, it's not that big a deal. And now I'm like really thinking about it. I've also yeah. got an itch like just below my <laughs> lip and on my left ear. And I'm, I'm not scratching any of them. Is this such a big problem? Yeah, well, I mean, if you get a good itch and then you're like thinking, dwelling on it, when you're supposed to be focusing on other things, it can be, you know. Just focus on the other thing. I'm thinking, yeah. I'm focusing well, on podcasts this, and what's coming up next. This is a, to you. exactly the thing. It is easier. They, they say if you can't, if none of that works uh, for the itch, they just kind of have to endure. And this, it for them, it's not as hard as, you know, like you might otherwise, because when you are in that spacesuit, like even just closing your hand on like the tool that you're holding is really hard because yeah. of the pressure, like it just wants to spring back open. So it's actually everything they do, just like the slightest movement takes a lot of effort. And they're doing this for like five to eight hours or so on their spacewalks. So they're really, you know, it's kind of easier to ignore stuff than, than might otherwise be. I'd, I'd say so. Yeah. I'd say so. Do we talk about this in this episode or is this going to be follow up? What's up with itching? Like, what is that about? I was originally going to, but then it was going to add so much of an aside and like a lot of medical stuff. And so I decided to okay. later put it in as its own thing. And also it's not completely like understood everything about the the itch, but uh, some it's, it turns out uh, just sort of a, a brief thing. It, it seems to be, I mean, there's lots of different things that can cause itches. Uh, so, but just in the general case, when you're looking at it, it's often just something there's, you have these special nerve receptors that are actually just for, uh, they're very similar to pain receptors, um, in, in kind of how they're, what they are, I guess. And so it's very similar to that, but they are a distinct system as part of your yeah. nervous system. And so, yeah, it is. And it's kind of like pain, the uh, you know, system. Yeah. It's just a nerve and it's a designated thing. I mean, there's lots of different things that can cause itches. So this is, you know, brought, again, this is a long episode <laughs> to get into yeah, all this yeah. stuff. Tell you what, man. Just stop. If we want to follow up next time, we will. If, you, if you're interested in what itches work, how itches yeah. work, Google it. It's interesting. But yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and this is why it can sometimes be unbearable, presumably, because it is very similar to like a pain receptor, you know, and it's just, uh, and, you know, various theories on how we developed this and why and all this, this system. Tell you what, though, if, if ever I'm taken captive by ISIS or whatever, and yeah. they're like, tell me about the plans of the CIA. I like, don't work for the CIA. I'd be like, Okay, we're gonna itch you to death. I'll be like, okay, cool. Yeah, that great. would be okay, horrible. To, can you imagine like putting no, you in a dude. room with like mosquitoes, okay. just full of mosquitoes, and just like that's what? Oh, man. I have I have my I have absolute rankings for this, and I'm I'm a hundred percent sure. Like you might be right on that buttermilk ranch, but dude, it is pain, tickling, itching. 
Yeah, tickling. Yeah, yeah tickling actually Whoa. induces interestingly a panic response in your body, like physiologically. It's a panic response that's happening. And of course, when it's someone you know and like and stuff, you know, it's more of like a fun panic response. But when it's something like a spider crawling across you, and this is of course where where it's useful, is just that instant like jerk and like ah, get it off. When it's a spider crawling across you, or someone from ISIS. Well, exactly. And when when it's not, this is this is also the thing. If it's someone you don't want tickling you, the the panic response is more of like a legitimate panic, like ah, stop it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Even even someone I know and like, I don't know. I'm the most ticklish person in the world. Like, have you ever had like a, a a medical where they'll like you know examine you and they'll press down on your belly or whatever to check for I don't know hernias or something, whatever they're yeah, doing probably. down there. Probably. And I'm always like to the doctor. Um, just letting you know, I'm extremely ticklish. So Even you know, I'm going to tense up and laugh. Oh, dude, it's unbelievable. Like, that's, that's interesting. Someone would like tickle me on my elbow and I'll be like, ah. <laughs> it's, ter- it's actually terrible. That, that is that is crazy. Now, now the whole world knows that. So when I do get kidnapped <laughs> by ISIS, they're going to use that to their advantage. Or just the next, the next VidCon you go to, people are just going to randomly come up and try to tickle you. Oh, be awful well at first i'm kind of like this is exciting and then it quickly becomes like please for the love of god stop where were we uh, we we are going to go back to the near vacuum of space so you know they're out there in their spacesuit but what if you didn't have a spacesuit on so if you're like most people you're just seeing movies and you're thinking oh you're gonna like freeze instantly or your head's gonna explode or whatever right like this oh, so is what... we, we are moving way beyond itching right now oh yeah this we're we're like, moving we moving on <laughs> We got a lot to cover here. We need to, we need to, you know, pick up the pace. Yes, because being exposed to the vacuum of space would not, not itch per se. No, it would be quite painful. But turns <laughs> out, turns out what you see in the movies where they like die instantly and stuff is not at all what would happen. And in fact, in fact, you would, you can go out without a spacesuit in space, even if the, hey, there's the sun. You know, if you're, I assume you're like around Earth's orbit or something like that, somewhere on that level. Even the sun's shining on you. And as long as you get inside within about 90 seconds and repressurization and everything, you're going to be completely fine. This is, you know. 90 seconds? 90 seconds. And actually, it might be closer to three minutes for humans, but obviously we're not throwing humans out airlocks just to test it. I mean, I don't want to say that we should. No, we definition. No. <laughs> but we... Three minutes. Yeah, well, 90 seconds, definitely. Three minutes. Three minutes, maybe. For, uh, for your, yeah, you're at the three minute mark, you're going to be like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I could even hold my bad breath for three minutes. Yeah, well, you definitely wouldn't want to hold your breath in this scenario. This would be a bad idea. Oh. Then you would die. Then you would definitely die because you you damage that. So what ends up happening is you you'd kind of like damage the lung tissue. I mean that that air is going to come out anyway, even if you're trying. But if you're actually physically trying to stop it from coming out, you're going to do a lot of damage internally. Wow, we are really saving lives on this show. So if you just, I mean, the number of listeners who are, it's got to be at least twenty percent who could be in this situation someday, and now they know not to hold their breath. Yeah, well, you do have the the rapid decompression aboard airliners and stuff, which has the same effect. Don't hold your breath. Oh, that's got to Just let it out. 60% of people are yeah. going to be in that situation. <laughs> yeah, just let it out. Because what, what can end up happening is you damage the lung tissue, but also air can be forced into your actual circulatory system. Now, as we're going to talk about in a minute, there's going to be air there anyway, uh, eventually, if you're out in the near vacuum of space. But that air, once you're repressurized, is going to you know go back to not being there, those air bubbles. But if you get the air forced into there, that's going to still yeah. be there. And then so that's going to cause you all sorts of problems. You're probably going to die. This is like a like a stroke or something, right? Where you get yeah, that yeah, you get a block, messes and, up your brain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So block and stuff, and so 
Actually, funny enough, the the first Guardians of the Galaxy had one of the more accurate depictions of this, which a lot of a lot of people like when that that scene, you know, when he goes out into space. And oh, of no course, protection. he jumps between the two. Does he jump between the two spaceships? Yeah, that, he's kind of well, happens? he's kind of flying a little bit, but yeah, basically. And uh, and yeah. then you know people were like, oh no way, he's you know kind all this stuff. Flying. But no, that one was actually not that inaccurate with, with their depiction. Um, so basically, to to just sort of real high level for about 10 to 15 seconds you'll remain conscious so you'll be kind of aware of things that are going on and then as long as someone puts you in back in representation like i said 90 seconds maybe up to three minutes uh uh-huh. you're going to be completely fine no long-term damage whatsoever um again if you you got to let that air out of your lungs don't don't fight it you expose the back you're like, don't fight it let it go <laughs> yeah. that air is coming out either way like even if you're trying that it's oh, you're not going to yeah. stop it but you know one it's coming way, out of your lungs out of yeah. your mouth or into your bloodstream good times <laughs> And another quick aside here, an aside to the aside here, uh, the smooth. <laughs> so they also, when you're looking, when you're looking at, you know, these people who are like, oh, they freeze solid instantly, and they're like, oh, because space is so cold, you know, in the movies. Dude, Mission to Mars, isn't yeah. it, where he falls out and he's like, whatever his wife's name is, because of course the husband and wife go to space to Mars together. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I gotta let you go, Kathy, <laughs> and he opens his space helmet. It's like, no, Jim. And his face freezes over. Yeah, no, not like that. And not it's realistic. Not, and space, space isn't cold because space is mostly nothing, and nothing doesn't have a temperature. Like it's just nothing that you can't. You know, this is this is a majority, and so, I mean, like you can see why people say it's cold because you know if there's no sunlight and stuff, you're gonna stuff's gonna freeze eventually. But the point being, it's not really cold. So it's like the, you think about the ways that the the temperatures, your temperature is gonna drop, so you're exposed. You're, you can radiate heat away, which takes a little while, and then you're also going to get the, the evaporation of moisture, so um, like off your tongue and your eyes, and like just you know if you're sweating, so then uh-huh. then you will get some frozen stuff because it's just going to evaporate real quick and it's going to cause. But but other than uh, that, other than that, your your you know your core body temperature is going to be fine. Um, so it's not really cold. And if you're in the sun, you're actually going to get too hot. You're going to overheat really quick because your body can't radiate off that heat fast enough for for what you're collecting in. So you're not going to you know within I don't know five to ten minutes you're gonna have some pretty severe sunburns and you're gonna you know. oh yeah of course no atmosphere nothing to protect you from those uv rays gotta slap on that factor 50 yeah so you're probably actually gonna gonna overheat is is gonna be that thing but so the space not cold it, you know okay. exactly it's just you know it takes a while to cool down anyway so this this uh this uh <laughs> an aside to the aside to the side wow we are it's like sideception this this actually had me wondering why? Why did the Apollo thirteen astronauts get cold? Why was their ship getting cold when it when they're not losing heat? Right? Like how how is uh, this happening? Yeah, Tom Hanks and his crew like they're all coming back and they're shivering and it's yeah. and you see their breath and stuff, right? Yeah. So like uh, it turns out the reason they got cold is precisely because it's hard to get rid of heat on a spacecraft. So what they had to do was design the spacecraft to get rid of heat as quickly as possible to radiate it out. As, as much as they, you know, as quickly so that it's specifically designed to radiate heat really quickly. Huh. Because otherwise, with their instruments and uh, all that stuff, like they, they would get, they would overheat quite quickly. And so the, the easy way to do this was just to specifically design things so that it, the, the ship is, you know, radiates the heat even when in the sun. Yeah. It, the net effect. So they're thinking, all right, it's going to be in the sun most of the time. And so we'll still, we'll design it to radiate all that heat that they're generating internally, all the heat that's coming from the sun. It's going to radiate it off. And then when they do, when they're in the shade or whatever from the moon or whatever, they do have heaters aboard to also kick on to just kind of give that extra heat to compensate. But when they have everything turned off inside, they don't have anything, uh, any power for the heater. 
what ends up happening is, of course, now they just have their body heat in the sun, and that is not sufficient to keep the the inside warm uh, with how it's Because the spaceship is just designed to for when on the instruments. Yeah, it's, it's designed to have wow. ex- more heat coming. Uh, so, so it's radiating the heat away, so that is why they got cold. But it turns out, um, yeah, it, it wasn't quite as cold as the movies depict. It was cold. Shocker. <laughs> yeah, and so then that also got me wondering... Why, why, why did Dude, are you, are you going four deep? Yes. Wow. New record for brain food right now. So why didn't they just put on their, um, their spacesuits, right? And it turns out, uh, after a lot of Googling, there, there seemed to be no consensus. Like a lot of people, I found a lot of forums and stuff. People were like, oh, it's, they had so many technical reasons why, oh, they couldn't have put on their spacesuit. But it turns out none of those were actually what they were thinking about at the time. Mm-hmm. So eventually I found, uh, did some deep digging uh, uh, Life magazine, May, I think it was May 1st, 1970 edition. Mm-hmm. They actually have all three astronauts talk about their um, about the, the mission and their own perspective on it, which was really interesting just to read kind of the, the real life story and all, all three of their different perspectives on it. And they, they uh, have some quotes that actually kind of deal with the cold and why they didn't wear their spacesuits. So uh, I guess we should start with um, Jim Lovell's account here. Eventually it dawns on me that somehow we all had to get some sleep and we tried to work out a watch system. We weren't very successful. Besides, the inside of the Odyssey kept getting colder and colder. It eventually got down pretty close to freezing points, and it was just impossible to sleep in there. Fred and I even put on our heavy lunar boots. Jack didn't have any, so he put on extra long johns. When you are moving around, the cold wasn't so bad, but when you were sitting still, it was unbearable. So the three of us spent more and more of our time together in Aquarius, which was designed to be flown by two men standing up at that. There wasn't really sleeping space for two men there, let alone three, so we just huddled in there, trying to keep warm and doze off by turns. We didn't get any sleep in the true sense of the word. We considered putting on our heavy... Ah, here's the relevant part. Mm -hmm. We considered putting on our heavy spacesuits, but the suits were so bulky that they would compromise our maneuverability in an emergency situation. And when you put on the suit, you were bound to perspire a lot. Soon you would be all the way to cold two, an invitation to pneumonia. Yeah. So yeah, then uh, as far as the ground control, you just say, uh, why weren't they thinking of a like a solution to the problem? And uh, I found um, some quotes by uh, Jerry Woodfill. He was um, he's a NASA engineer and he also worked on Apollo 13. He was the warning systems um, operator or whatever for the spacecraft. So yeah, he, he just basically said, yeah, nobody was really concerned about it. They were they weren't like cold enough to get hypothermia or anything. They were just cold. And so they, yeah. you know, they had... Uh, they had bigger problems to deal with than than they just did. than just the astronauts being cold, so they didn't really worry about it on the as to try to find a solution. And then, yeah, so in the same Life magazine article, Jack Swigert also notes of this. It was thirty-eight degrees in the Odyssey before re-entry. Aquarius was a nice warm fifty degrees. Uh, dude, what are these temperatures in actual measurements? <laughs> we'll convert those. Uh, fifty degrees in Celsius is. 10 Celsius. Ooh, that's chilly. That is chilly. What was the other one? That's not that cold, though. That's like a cool, I don't know, fall evening or something. Autumn evening, I should say. That's true. That's yeah. true. And if you're wearing long johns and stuff, it's not that bad in the Aquarius. I mean, the other one, the other one that's near freezing, just it's probably like two degrees Celsius or something. Um, so that one 3. was... 3. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Aquarius. Recurring, apparently. Yeah, Aquarius. And of course, you're uh, you're stuck in that for a long time. So you're just, you know, that is going to have a, a cumulative effect on your how cold it feels but um yeah but 50 degrees you know they're not they're not gonna freeze uh so it wasn't really it wasn't really like in the movie they have like the frozen hot dogs they're like tapping against the 
the side of the, the oh, panel yeah. there and stuff. It, it wasn't quite that bad, but I could have watched that movie again. That was, that was a great movie. That was, that was a great movie. Great soundtrack too, which is, uh, I'm always a sucker for the movies with a good soundtrack. Huh. Didn't know. I was, uh, we talked about Tron previously. You got me into, I've never yeah. seen Tron, but I've got into the soundtrack. Yeah. I gotta check out that Apollo 13. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Fred Hayes, he did have a little more trouble because he was, um, he had that urinary tract infection, which, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he wasn't drinking a lot of water because they, none of them were, they were kind of conserving their water because they needed it for eventual cooling when they're reentering and stuff. So, mm-hmm. and, and oxygen and all that. So, um, yeah, they didn't. And so anyways, he had a urinary tract infection and a fever and all that. So he, he had a little bit rougher time than the other two. And he also states his, his account in the Life magazine article. I've been a lot colder before, but I've never been so cold for so long. The last 12 hours before re-entry were particularly bone-chilling. During this period, I had to go into the command module. It took me four hours back in the LM before I stopped shivering. Because of the cold, during the last two nights, I slept in the tunnel between the two vehicles with my head in the LM, and with the string of my sleeping bag wound around the latch handle of the LM hatch so that I wouldn't float around. Am I pronouncing that right? I think LM is they they lem, they say right? lem, but yeah, LM. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, you know? it's but, just uh, okay. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, that's why they didn't wear their spacesuits. Too bulky, too cumbersome, and they were also writing stuff down. You know, you can't write stuff down if you're wearing a spacesuit. Yeah. So, anyways, back to back to the surviving in space without a spacesuit. Before we said 90 seconds, right? 90 seconds, you'll definitely survive if you just go out. And uh, so, yeah. And three minutes was the maybe, right? Yeah, three minutes is the maybe. So that 90 second mark is based on um, uh, dogs. And actually, we'll get into chimpanzees oh, here a little bit. So, oh, yeah. This, if you're, if you're, um, yeah, this is not a good time for the dogs or the chimpanzees. So you might what? prepare to get a little angry. About that. Do I remember something about bloating up like a goatskin bag? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, it's coming. And of course, they wanted <laughs> just, to. Just FYI. <laughs> they wanted to take things to the extreme. So for some of the dogs, that was like, yeah, how long until they die? Um, so, mm. yeah, not good. Not good. But for, I'm not like a desperately yeah. big animal person, but some of this stuff is just yeah. brutal. Yeah. 1965 at the Brooks Air Force Base mm-hmm. in Texas. They ran a series of experiments looking at this very thing. How long, how long could a person survive in, in a vacuum? or near vacuum, I should say. Uh, so what they specifically did was one 380th normal atmospheric pressure for varying amounts of times just to see what would happen. And what it turns out is that every dog uh, with with that survived with no permanent damage whatsoever for as long as the time was less than 90 seconds. Um, and once they pushed it to two minutes, the dogs uh, generally suffered cardiac arrest and they died. So mm-hmm. that uh, similar to kind of similar to human, 10 to 20 seconds of consciousness for the dogs before they and this is this is where kind of like what would happen to you if you were doing it uh, so simultaneous urination oh, projectile good. vomiting <laughs> and defecation all at once because you got all that gas in the you know digestive tract and stuff rapidly expelling uh-huh. things and and then from the stomach as well and all that um some of the dogs also had seizures and they did have a thin layer of ice on their tongues uh, and mm-hmm. and their mouths and stuff but otherwise you know the temperature was fine and everything and they swelled this is where you're talking about swelled to nearly twice oh, yeah yeah here it is nearly <laughs> twice their normal size which just sound crazy like how could they be fine how is that survivable yeah like it's, it's amazing skin's so good though like holding stuff in and this is exactly what happened is that once they returned pressure their everything went back to the normal size and what they found was uh yeah uh basically right away the dogs were just kind of laying there um and then eventually after about 10 to 15 minutes they they um they were they started to be fine and they're um though they were blind at first um and then they their eyesight came back um everything everything was fine after that and all these dogs as long as 90 seconds around there under they were good Uh, no long term amazing yeah crazy how how, uh, resilient the 
the body. So looking at more, uh, they wanted to go a little bit more like closer to what it <laughs> like. The biggest effect was significant stretch marks. <laughs> yeah, you would think, right? Oh, yeah. So for chimpanzees, they they took it on to chimpanzees to try to get a little closer to humans. And what they mm. found was actually chimpanzees lasted a lot longer than the dogs. Um, uh, almost all of them survived up to the three minute mark, and the record actually was a three point five minutes. After that, they they tended to die. But um, yeah, but they were able to also on these chimpanzees actually had you know higher cognitive abilities, and they were able to verify that they still, except for one exception, um, as long as it was under three minutes, they survived. And the with one exception, they all had their normal cognitive abilities, so no damage there, or anything. So, I guess in terms of like. If you're talking brain damage here and oxygen starvation leading to it, mm-hmm. three and a half, three minutes is not an uh, not a ton of time for it to be at without oxygen, right? I mean, yeah. people, you know, you can that's pretty survivable if you're like in underwater or whatever. Yeah, and it's not like without oxygen right away because your blood, even though everything's starting to right. swell and stuff, your blood, your heart's still beating, which is the critical. This ended up being the critical thing is is once your heart stops. So far, uh, and also we're going to talk about in a little bit some accidents with humans that actually happen. So as long as your heart was still beating as the repressurization happens, they were all fine. Once the cardiac arrest uh, occurred, they never were able to to uh, get anyone's heart back going and getting them back. Um, so it was, and this turns out to be around the three minute mark is where everything uh, basically turns. There's too much air in there, and your heart stops beating, and then that's so you do have like a little bit of circulation at first. You know, it's not okay. like instant. So yeah, they uh, they are uh, looking at depressurization events that have happened. So the first such accident was uh, um, at the Johnson Space Center in 1965. Um, so the the person accidentally ripped a, a hose out of the suit, and um, this caused rapid decompression. And so he was conscious for about um, 15 seconds or so, uh, and that was actually around the same point that they they started repressurizing the the chamber. And yeah, they they got a little brief glimpse here. So he he later said uh, the guy survived this event. And he said, yeah, at first he felt that water kind of evaporating off his tongue and everything like that. And the oh, I should mention here, the whole event lasted about 27 seconds before they had him down to the 15,000 foot atmospheric pressure level, which is, you know, a little bit more safe. Um, most people are going to probably, you know, be conscious around there, maybe, but, you know, mm-hmm. borderline. Um, so anyways, yeah, he, he said the only long term damage here he had for that for his little ordeal there was for several days after the accident, he just couldn't taste like his taste wasn't normal. And then after about a week, it went back to normal. He was completely fine. Jolly good. It it just amazes me how survivable this stuff is. Yeah, crazy, right? Like, yeah, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure quite painful. Like, but I mean, you're unconscious, for, so you probably don't care so much. Um, I mean, even if Hollywood hadn't screwed up our perceptions of like people going out into space and exploding, mm-hmm. I still think it. Even if that, even if we didn't have that preconception, this would still be pretty. Like, we're very resilient. Yeah, man. So, so yeah. Again, that first Guardians of the Galaxy. Other than the fact that he didn't yeah. swell up, like his body didn't swell up. And he didn't yeah, like. He didn't turn into a goat skin. And bag. he didn't like have poop all his underwear afterwards. Uh, uh, yeah, he was <laughs> just <laughs> expelling from like three different orifices. Yeah, all at the same time. Other than that, I kind of felt like Guardians of the Galaxy could get away with that though. That'd be they'd make a joke out of it. Yeah, true. Uh, but I'm gonna need some more underwear. <laughs> yeah, but uh, surprisingly, that one uh, compared to other Hollywood depictions, that one's one of the more accurate. So yeah, there was actually another case where the person didn't survive, and again, this one took three minutes to repressurize the chamber. And so this one, when they did repressurize, he actually did start breathing for for just a little bit, like he started gasping. Um, but then he stopped breathing, and they, and his heart had stopped. And again, they have uh, whether dogs or animals or whatever. Once the heart stops, ah. in these scenarios, they've never been able to get him get him going again. So yeah. Oh, and then we have we have more during the Soyuz uh, Eleven mission in 1971. 
Um, they also just this one just kind of noting that the body ends up looking pretty much fine, even extended stuff. This one lasted about 11 minutes or so. They were they were exposed. These, these this crew they did die. Um, so yeah, I, re- I I remember this story from long before we're talking about it today. It's mm-hmm. quite. It, this is the one with the bolts, right? Where they basically kind of rather than oh yeah, this kind of what what happened? Yeah, they had those explosives, like you're saying, and they were supposed to all you know, detach one at a time to, to detach the orbital module. And they just all went yeah. at once, which then caused a pressurization outside briefly uh, that caused the failure of a pressurization equalization valve, which was supposed to, once they get back into regular atmospheric yes. pressure, it's supposed to open. And so it opened, you know, when it wasn't supposed to open, they were still 104 miles up, which is what, like 170 kilometers, maybe? This is an example of how screwed up my thinking is. I need that in feet. <laughs> That's funny. Because it's like you think about airplanes, right? They fly at like 30,000 yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. That is high. That is super high. Yeah. That's 549,000 feet. That's like 15 times higher than planes fly. Yeah, so this, they, obviously, they they, uh, they they did. That's a bad time. Yeah, so it, does, it did take a little bit for the cabin to completely depressurize, about 30 seconds. And uh, unfortunately, to close the valve manually took about 60 seconds. And so the guy, Victor Patsyev, uh, he was he was the closest, the only one he was strapped in to be able to reach it. So he started trying to close the valve. Uh, and unsurprisingly, from the times I just said, he got about halfway done uh, before he passed out. And unfortunately, that was that for them. Wow. But when they came down to kind of bring it back to the discussion and when they came down, when they first uh, opened the, the hatch and looked, they thought the cosmonauts just looked like they were all asleep. There was nothing like no real physical damage at first glance. When they look, started looking closely, they did see... That sort of rapid decompression signs, you know, like that you would normally see on a person like in a plane. Wake up, Victor. Yeah. I'm not napping. I just came down from space and landed in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they, when they looked closer, they did wow. they did sort of see some of this, uh, you know, just like you would get in an airplane or whatever, high altitude, rapid decompression, but no, no real like major physical damage, even for them being exposed for as long as they were, um, which is just crazy. The human body, super resilient. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh, oh, pretty amazing. Yeah. And this one, this one is more, isn't there? No, this one, this one, nobody <laughs> dies. So this, it just stick with me on this one. Joe Kittinger. Wait, they just did. Uh, oh, sorry. Different story. Yeah. Different, different story. Uh, Joe Kittinger. Uh, so he went uh, 19.5 miles up on August 16th, 1960. It was, Why do I know that name? He was the, re- was he the guy who did the Red Bull thing before the Red Bull guy. Yeah. But I mean, before Red Bull, but yeah, exactly. I know, I know. I don't know why I call it. That is just an example of how good Red Bull is at branding. Because yeah. I'm like, yeah, the Red Bull thing where he jumped off the, he did the yeah. orbital skydive or whatever. Yeah, Joe, it's like, that's not the Red Bull thing. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Kittinger was the, he did the record leap back in 1960. It was then the record leap, obviously, is broken. But uh, so, um, yeah, he notes he, he actually had a kind of an accident during, or not an accident, but uh, something that went wrong. And he just, he just went with it. So uh, during his ascent, the following happened. At 43,000 feet, I find out what can go wrong. My right hand does not feel normal. I examine the pressure glove. Its air bladder is not inflating. The prospect of exposing the hand to the near vacuum of peak altitude causes me some concern. From my previous experiences, I know that the hand will swell, lose most of its circulation, and cause extreme pain. I decide to continue the ascent without notifying ground control of my difficulty. Circulation has almost stopped in my unpressurized right hand, which feels stiff and painful. Upon landing, Dick looks at the swollen hand with concern. Three hours later, the swelling disappeared with no ill effect. Yeah, so he was up there. His total ascent time took an hour and 31 minutes, and he stayed at peak altitude for 12 minutes. And then the descent took 13 minutes and 45 seconds. So all that time with his hand exposed to that near vacuum, 
completely fine not long after, which is just amazing. And so, yeah, and then also that NASA has actually had a, a, a hole in, a, in one of the spacesuits. It's, it's quite amazing the number of people apparently have been exposed to the vacuum of space. Yeah, so this, um, they had basically like a little pinhole, uh, what was it, uh, well, he'll get into it in a little, in a little bit, but it's just a little uh-huh. pinhole in the spacesuit. And they didn't even bother telling the astronaut because it was seemed fine. Nothing bad was happening. And so they just went with it and they didn't tell him till later. Um, so, uh, yeah, NASA engineer Gregory Bennett, he notes of this. The palm restraint in one of the astronaut's gloves came loose and migrated until it punched a hole in the pressure bladder between his thumb and forefinger. It was not explosive decompression, just a little one-eighth of an inch hole. But it was exciting down here in the swamp because it was the first injury we've ever had from a suit incident. Amazingly, the astronaut in question didn't even know the puncture had occurred. He was so hopped up on adrenaline, it wasn't until after he got back down that he even noticed there was a painful red mark on his hand. He figured his glove was chafing and didn't worry about it. Yeah, so we don't actually, they didn't mention, NASA doesn't seem to mention anywhere which astronaut it was, but it was either Jerry Ross or J. Apt Bennett. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no long-term ill effects from the uh, the skin being exposed to space, just plugging this hole, his own skin. Like, so if there was a hole in your spaceship, apparently you could just stick your finger in the hole and like, that's good. I'll just hold it there till we get something more. Um, oh, and, uh, wow. and by the way, we don't know when this, I mean, presumably it happened pretty early on, but uh, they also didn't mention uh, when at what point during the spacewalk this happened, but they were out there for 10 hours and 49 minutes. I looked it up uh, during that particular spacewalk reference. So, you know. It could have been potentially for hours and not really clear. I think we were talking about last time how long spacewalks were and how mm-hmm. surprised I was at the fact that they, mm-hmm. they do last so long. But then there's all that suiting up stuff. Yeah. If, if Hollywood wanted to actually do it accurately, what they would first have, uh, so they would have the person remain conscious for 10 or 15 seconds instead of like instantly passing out or head exploding or whatever. Um, so they'd have the, the water vapor off the tongue. They would have like a frozen tongue a little bit, you know, just the surface, obviously. Um, and, you know, so feeling cold and then they would have them projectile vomit and, and, and poop basically, um, quite quickly as things are, things are being ejected. Uh, and notably not depicted in guardians of the galaxy. Yeah, no, which would have been, yeah, they could have done something with that. But yeah, so then, uh, obviously if your eustachian tubes in your ears are plucked up by earwax, you're probably going to have not a good time for your ears, but, um, you know, most of the time probably just going to, you know, whatever. Uh, so at first, I'm glad you. I'm glad you knew the pronunciation on that because I assumed you were going to defer to me to pronounce these station <laughs> tubes, and I was like, "Well, you I'm glad it sounded like I knew what I was talking about on that one. Cause like, excellent job. I just went excellent with it. Job. I assume. Uh, so yeah, the so your heart rate. What initially happened to you? Your heart rate will spike up, then steadily fall after, um, uh, as will your arterial blood pressure, um, and your venous pressure. Blood pressure will uh, steadily rise as the gases start to form and you know swell things up. Um, yeah, and so your body will swell up to, you know, up as much as twice its normal size with the skin stretching uh, all this, which uh, I, is sort of an aside here, sort of interesting. You can prevent some of this, some of this from happening. So your your blood will usually boil around 47 torr pressure. Uh, that's, uh, that's really light. So for reference there, the 760 torr is normal atmospheric pressure. So around there. Um, so at, all the way down at 47 torr is when your blood will normally boil. But turns out the uh, bioastronautics data book uh, claims you can wear a suit, uh, sort of a suit that just kind of holds your skin in that will prevent this from happening all the way down to 15 tour. So if you're just wearing this really tight, like, I don't know, like an ultra tight spandex or something suit, it will keep (laughs) it will keep the pressure so high enough inside, even though, you know, the pressure outside, you know, like the physical pressure is going to be so much that it'll actually keep your, your blood from boiling all the way down to 15 tour. But unfortunately, 
for those you know wanting to to go out an airlock. Uh, so for instance, it's about ten to the negative eleven. So ninety percent of everyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ten to the negative eleven tour. So it's it, this this um, this spandexy suit. This really like would would protect you somewhat. Like it might extend it, so maybe it would last a little longer before <laughs> your heart stopped beating. But uh, but yeah, either way, it's not going to do it ultimately. But um, well, I'm disappointed, NASA. Come on. <laughs> uh, so the swelling actually in your body, a lot of that's from like the um, the the moisture in your soft tissue and stuff turning gaseous and just everything swelling. You're swelling up uh, and then getting a little colder around the orifices. You know, all your orifices are going to get cold from the uh, expelling the moisture and stuff. I'm losing mm-hmm. heat that way. Um, yeah, if you're in the sunlight, as as noted, around the Earth's atmosphere or Earth's orbit level, kind of distance from the sun. Uh, you can actually last several minutes before you'd get like extreme sunburns, but you would get extreme sunburns, but you'd be dead before that was a problem. Like if you, you know, so that that's over the 90 second mark. So you just need to get inside quicker. <laughs> Good news. You're already dead. <laughs> yeah. So you're not going to worry too much about the sunburn in this case, uh, but that would happen eventually you'd overheat and stuff. So yeah, your skin starts to turn bluish purple from the, from the lack of oxygen, uh, which by the way, it's not the blood. It's not the blood that's turning blue. That's a, that's a myth. It does not turn blue. It turns more of a dark red, which then just by the way the sun goes and, you know, or the light uh, absorbs in your skin and stuff just and with your veins and everything makes it turn that sort of bluish purple color look, even though the, huh. the blood's actually just more of like a dark red at that point rather than rather than light red. Yeah. So your heart's going to continue beating somewhere around the 90, 180 second mark. Your, the blood pressure will drop so much and the, you know, blood's boiling and all that. Uh, your heart will stop beating. And then at that point, yeah, you're no good. They can get you back inside and you're not, you're at least as far as the uh, accounts so far of like experiments and uh, accidents that have happened, they're not going to get your heart going again. So you just need to get, someone needs to get you back inside before that. And if they do, you'll be temporarily blind and uh, mostly unable to move, just kind of laying there. But uh, eventually your, your sense of taste, everything, your sight comes back and uh, yeah, you're all good. That was, that was a terrible description. It was like, this is, Basically, everything horrible happens to you, yeah. but you can live. And you're good news. And not only do you live, is your if, if within that time you're not even going to have any long term damage. You're just going to be, yeah. you know, it probably be a little pain at first. I'm sure uh, one would think. Just don't let it go beyond that, because then it leads to like, well, absolute death, and you know, yeah. maybe some brain damage. There was the chimpanzee who was three and a half minutes, was yeah, it? Yeah. And then he got a bit dumb. So yeah, yeah. don't uh, get back inside. Yeah, you're like guys, um, scoop me back in, pull the tether. Or use one of those uh, jet packs that they always seem to be using in the movies. Do those exist? I hope those exist. Oh, you know, that would be like, a pretty easy thing in space. Yeah. Oh, yes, for the yeah. for the spacesuit ones. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. I think I've seen like pictures of that. Just little puffs of air, like Iron Man, but yeah. real. But even like the even like the Guardians of the Galaxy one, where he's got that little. I mean, that would probably not be difficult oh, to yeah. design. You know. <laughs> Today I found that project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of decompressions, uh, so we're gonna we're yes. gonna move on a little bit away from space, but something a little more practical, uh, or maybe just something. You Could, uh, are we moving on to planes? Yeah. All right. So speaking of decompression on a plane, we're kind of uh, moving a little aside here, but I think an interesting one. So if you've ever wondered why that bag, you know, the you know when you so you're on a commercial airplane, uh, airplane, and uh, maybe the you have a decompression incident, the bag's dropped. Never down. personally happened to me, but I've seen it happen. <laughs> Yeah, but why do they always say the bag might not inflate? Like, why why isn't this this bag of oxygen, this oxygen bag, not inflating? Oh, right, because there's the mask, uh, and then there's like the tube or whatever. Then there's yeah. a bag, and then there's a tube, right, going up to the yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this these things are really interesting, just the way they work. So I wanted to talk about it. Okay, there we go, there we go. That's that's what we get to do on this podcast. <laughs> 
It turns out the the sort of the economics of having a, a central oxygen supply on a plane just isn't it doesn't work out when you're talking about the weight and everything. Um, so the only people who have an actual dedicated oxygen supply if they need it for emergency is uh-huh. the pilots, uh, which is good. Yes. You know, good. They have like they they get their own. But so what 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 do the people get? What does everyone else get? Um, and it turns out it's actually a little explosion, a explosive device. Uh, it's called an oxygen candle. Okay. And so, yeah, so this is also why they tell you to tug on it, because you need to actually trigger the explosion um, to happen. But it's just a little explosion. You know, it just, so, yeah, they, so they have the, the two chemicals, uh, uh, lead stiffnate and uh, tetracine, which then uh, cause a little, uh, little minor spark, and then it starts to heat up. And then inside these little, it's almost like a little tennis ball-like package, like think of that, like that size, um, is these, these oxygen candles. So they're going to generate it using science, basically the oxygen, instead of actually having an oxygen supply there. Um, so in, inside, so what, as it's heating up, they have these three chemicals, um, sodium chlorate, barium peroxide, and potassium perchlorate. And these, these together, when, when they're heated up and burned, it causes a chemical reaction that then just outputs oxygen. And this is also why you might smell like if you ever in this situation, you might smell like burning when you're, when you're, um, you know, breathing in the oxygen uh-huh. and everything. And it's just because it, that's exactly what happened. Like, uh, don't panic. There was a little explosion. <laughs> yeah, don't panic. There's now it's just this chemical reactions occurring, creating a little bit of oxygen. Um, so, yeah, this is what's happening. And so, but why, why isn't it inflating the bag? And it turns out because it doesn't produce oxygen very quickly. These, these little things, they are designed to produce oxygen more at first. Um, so when you need it the most, when you're at really high altitude, you need more. Yeah. But they're not really producing it super fast, just fast enough. It's life sustaining. You know, you're going to be fine because obviously the instant the, the pilots, the first thing they're going to do is, you know, drop, um, back down. drop their flaps and yeah, drop their flaps and just like descend as quickly as they can to a more, you know, safe altitude or whatever, 10,000 feet or whatever. Um, normally they keep uh, the, the internal cabin pressures around seven to 8,000 feet atmospheric pressure. So that kind of they're going to drop you down to that and then you don't need it. Um, but anyways, also you could have the other reason is because the the seal on your face might not be good if you have facial hair or whatever. So damn, yeah, slow oxygen production isn't gonna be fast enough to uh, inflate, and then with that that loss of seal and everything, and you're probably really panicked and breathing really hard. So you're breathing like you're really sucking that air down. Yeah. So it's just especially not- when it's like it explosively decompresses the cabin on all the air sucked out, yeah. and then it's like suddenly the plane starts plunging yeah. as the pilots get you down to like uh, an altitude where there's breathable oxygen. Yeah, and they do it very rapidly, yes. as rapid as they can. So yeah, it's not a, it's a scary time. So you're sucking down that air. And so if you weren't to be the valve and everything on there, if you had a good seal and you weren't taking a breath, which, you know, you should be breathing, of course. But if you didn't, the bag would start to inflate eventually because that bag is there to create like a reservoir. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Just imagine like someone on a flight, he's taken like a Xanax or whatever, and it's like the plane's going down and they're like, it's cool. I'm pretty chill. <laughs> it's just their bag. The only yeah. one that's inflating yeah. is, is like, I'm not panicked. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> just like too yeah. many wines. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And this is why they do say, though, that to get your mask on first is going back to that uh, before. After 10 to 15 seconds, you're going to pass okay. out. At, at, at that high altitude and so you do need to do it pretty quick and then you'll and then you know once you got your oxygen flowing then you can do it for other people around you if they didn't manage uh to get it but um either way that uh, that is why that happens all right so now moving on so i just said uh what they didn't they don't have any central oxygen supply aboard so how do they get all the oxygen when you're in the you know flying at uh, thirty-five thousand feet or whatever yeah. right and this is also super interesting um, so in the old days, in the old days, they used to just use these electrical, electric powered compressors to sort of like compress the the outside air and then bring it in. And so it's nice pressurized. And when it's pressurized like that, then the oxygen is more condensed than it is outside mm-hmm. the plane. 
Um, so, so you're good. You can breathe whatever. And so the Boeing 787 Dreamliner actually still uses this, you know, that new. This is a great plane. Have you flown on this? Super no, I nice. Haven't. Super nice. Yeah. Like uh, big, yeah. comfortable, nice big windows. Uh, also pressurized mm. to a lower altitude. So, uh, yeah. Oh, oh this is nice. great. It's a, it's a really, like, I think that the, people often talk about the A380, which is the huge uh, double story, biggest mm-hmm, plane mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah. And the Boeing uh, 787, the Dreamliner, I like it a little bit more. Very nice. 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 It probably has also like all the modern amenities like plugs and oh, USB. Dude. Yeah, I mean, that depends on the airline more because yeah. then that depends what they want to put in there and like oh, yeah. seating configurations and stuff. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty much brand new. So, yeah, super yeah. nice. Yeah, but also interesting is they use this electrical compressor. I don't know why. I'm sure like the engineers must have had a good reason for doing this instead of what everyone else does. Um, all the other designs do. So modern airliners actually have a much like it's a, it's a bit of a clever system um, to what they do is actually they use the um, a stage, one of the stages of the of the um, the, the engine, you know, the turbine yeah. engine there. Uh, so it, there it's the uh, the compressor stage in there. So they basically just have um, they take that air in that compressor stage. So it's really compressed when it's really hot, too, which is a problem. Um, so they take this super hot air. It's like 400 degrees Fahrenheit, um, 200 degrees Celsius, approximately. Um, and so they take that and they're actually going to pipe it in. And that's where your air supply is going to come from in, in the plane is, is this, this compressor stage of the, of the engine, the jet engine there. It's just really awesome. Just cause it's more efficient than just grabbing it a separate way. Yeah, they already got it. So they don't have to, they don't have to, you know, the weight and the extra, uh, component cost of the electrical compressor. And of course the electrical compressor, I mean, you probably have to have like a backup, right? Uh, just in case the one goes out or whatever, whereas the, the engine, I mean, if, all the engines go yeah, out, then you have other problems on your hand. Um, so you already got them right there from the engines. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I've got so, some bad news. Uh, both engines have yeah. failed. Uh, we're not going to have electrical supply in the cabin for the time, or like new air moving yeah. into the cabin for and, the time yeah. being. And now we're now we're not going to yeah. have yeah a lot of air. But you do have air in the cabin. Um, right. It would it, like you say not my primary concern when both of those engines have gone out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you got enough to for the you know the pilots to do something. So, so yeah, what happens is so they take it and it's really hot. Like I said, like just so they they bring, they pipe it in, run it through a heat exchanger and sort of this air cycling system to cool it off, so it's not like you know burning all the people to death as it's coming into <laughs> like the that's cabin. An oven temperature and uh, cooking chips in that in that yeah. Uh, that yeah yeah exactly You're roasting it. So and this also uh, trying to pork. Yeah, yeah, they use this also to um, to heat the cabin. So this is this is also a great way to heat the a heating system because they can regulate the temperature to what they want. You know, using this heat exchanger in the air, you know, cycle system. Um, so they end up getting the also heating the cabin to nice, nice, comfortable temperatures. Which is, I mean, as anyone knows, when you look at the temperature on those screens up there, they tell you the temperature outside. It's like really cold, like negative fifty Celsius. I always or whatever. say a nice, comfortable temperature. I always seem to need to, no matter where I'm flying to, like you could be flying from two tropical countries, and it's still be damn cold on that plane. Yeah. So this this is how that works. It's kind of yeah. cool. Just that compressor stage, and it's cooled, filtered everything, and they put it in and around the again the seven to eight thousand feet uh, sort of pressurization level, and they don't do more just because, or at least in most of the planes, they don't do more because it would just require a lot more structural integrity and all that to hold that pressure at altitude. And so they don't bother. They just, you know, most people are comfortable around that unless you, you know, have specific medical condition or something that, um, that makes it so you're not comfortable at that level. So, and this, this also leads to the fact that, you know, so when you're aboard a plane, it feels stuffy, right? People, everyone says like, it's so stuffy in here and you got, you're breathing everyone well, else's this is air. Why I think this whole section's quite interesting because like 
at, at a higher level, it's kind of you get on a plane and everyone's like, oh, you're going to get sick from the other people who are like, you know, the germs are just mm -hmm. recirculating around the cabin and it's like it smells and it's not nice. This whole thing is kind of like, not really. Yeah. And this not only that, like, so you got all this air piping in. So how fast do they do it? It turns out all the air in the entire plane is circulated every two to three minutes. It's completely fresh air supply. Um, so there's a there's a, a vent out the back, which you can actually look if you look at planes out the back. There's usually somewhere there'll be a vent hole or multiple vents. And these kind of regulate the mm -hmm. pressure inside. So they'll open and close automatically, you know, based on the pressure. Um, and so that it just keeps a nice even pressure in the plane. And uh, sort of a fun a fun fact before when they used to allow smoking on planes, these the outport, you could always spot them because there was a big brown oh, stain nice. where the, you know, coming out the back from the. Yeah, the tobacco. Two to three minutes, though. That's that's a lot of. Uh, yeah, I feel like that would almost be windy, but I guess not. Yeah, it's it it's just coming through. They you know they pipe it in the front and it's going out the back, and so it's just a nice continuous fresh air supply in there. So it turns out like your car, your house, your office, whatever is probably a lot more stuffy in wow. reality. You know, you're not getting that sort of air circulation than than these planes, um, which is I don't know. I think that's pretty interesting how that all works. Pretty clever, too, how to just, oh, we'll just, you know, some engineer at some point was like, yeah, well, why don't we just take the air out of that compressor stage? Right I love there. anything like this. This is like one of my favorite engineering things where it's like you find a way to do something that is just like that little bit of efficiency that's just, why didn't we think of this before? Anything like that. Love it. Yeah, we're just going to, we're going to get the air and we'll get the, the heat. You know, we won't even need like a separate heater system or whatever. We'll get you know, what it'd be we real need. cool. You know, they heat the meals via in ovens. I always assumed it was microwaves in planes, <laughs> right? Because that would be, yeah. you know, you think if yeah. I want to heat something like an airplane meal, I'll do it in a microwave. It's just how it works. But they can't for some reason. Mm -hmm. I think maybe microwaves or something cause interference, whatever. Again, this is not the fully researched thing. This is Simon remembering something you read online once. So don't take it with, don't take what I say the same way you take what Damon says. <laughs> but it would be cool. <laughs> If they also use that air at the 400 degrees, 200 Celsius, to heat the passenger meals. Why not? Maybe they do. Perfectly yeah. possible if they wanted to pipe it in that way. But, but yeah, the, the one downside of this is, of course, the so you got that air at altitude is really low humidity, not a lot of moisture yes. in there at altitude. And that's where they're piping the air in. And so this is why you dehydrate so quickly just breathing, you know, because you're breathing this really dry air. So the, the moisture from your body just goes out really quickly. And you dehydrate very quickly on planes, which is why they're constantly shoving drinks in your face and everything um, to try to help, you know, so you don't get dehydrated because dehydrated on, you know, on these planes when you're sitting for many hours in a row, that's just a recipe for disaster with uh, all sorts of, you know, blood clotting. And I, I should probably not do this. And this is probably not good advice, but like, I like it because then I don't have to pee because I'm like on a plane, I will not really uh, drink very much because then I have to get up and I'd just mm -hmm. rather like sit in my chair for 10 hours yeah. and just get there. Because then I can kind of just like zone yeah, out or that's... sleep or whatever. And that's probably not a great idea. So I should drink more on a plane. Yeah, not, not the best, <laughs> especially for those types yeah, of Yeah, especially because if, if I'm drinking anything, it's uh, definitely of the alcoholic variety. So <laughs> it's probably not helping either. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a, a little dehydrating yeah, effect. Yeah. Good times. Uh, there we go. Something useful for me this episode. <laughs> drink more on planes. Yeah, drink, drink more and... Um... But yeah, this is also, that's why people, they get so dehydrated and that's why sometimes you get off planes and you're kind of hoarse, you know, you're, sure. you're talking kind of raspy and stuff. It's, you're just really dehydrated. You need to drink more water. Um, so yeah, and also because of this low humidity level, this, this is why uh, airplane food is awful because it's it's going to taste really bland because we don't have that moisture. It's going to affect your your taste and your um, smell of things. And so your your taste of your perceived taste of things is something you would think was delicious on the ground is not going to taste great. It's going to taste really bland at altitude like that with the low humidity levels. So what they do to compensate 
and why, why airplane food has kind of gotten a little better is they just spice it like way more, like all the seasoning way more than they would normally huh. do so that you'll actually taste it more appropriately. Um, and this is this is kind of what Should they do. Should we do a video about this at some point? It feels familiar, like... I don't think so, but you do a lot of videos. That's true. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a Top Tens, which is another channel I do. But I, I do feel familiar with this. And I think there was something... Or maybe I was just wondering, like, how do they taste test this? Because, I mean, you like when you're preparing food mm-hmm. and stuff for people, you must like try many different varieties. So they, they like prepare it, then get mm-hmm. their taste testers, fly them up in the air and be like, all right, we're going to bring you out some sample menus while we circle above yeah. this airport. Or maybe there's pressure chambers or something. Maybe they try new new recipes and stuff and then just put a little like a little poll like, hey, everyone in the and just tell us what you thought of this food. And you kind of rate yeah. it and stuff. I could see that yeah. being a thing. This is another reason why I think my uh, my did I tell you about my business idea? No. OK, so um, this is one I don't really understand. Like this is literally a business idea for probably five people in the world who are like the five richest people in the world. All right. So if you've got like a. It, Private jets, super expensive. You know, you're spending like mm-hmm. $70 million or whatever on a thing. Why not? And, mm-hmm. and pressurization is a big thing, right? So I was thinking if I was designing, if I was Learjet, what I would do is I'd buy like a big old 747, like a cargo plane. And then in, and that's pressurized mm-hmm. to however many thousand feet, right? And within that cargo mm-hmm. plane, I would place another chamber. So it would be like a double hulled mm-hmm. thing. And then I would reduce mm-hmm. that to ground pressure. So it's like your, your VIP would get mm-hmm. on. It'd go into this like shipping container style room within a mm-hmm. giant cargo ship. So it would be double pressurized to ground temperature. That way, no ear popping. The food all tastes good. You basically don't even know you're on a plane. Two second advantages to this. One, you don't, you have the double sound insulation. So basically all of the space around that shipping container. Yeah. I mean, you're a super billionaire. You don't need to think about what else am I going to fill my plane with to make extra money. Just sound insulation. So you can assume that that cargo thing that the special container is going to be completely soundproof third idea (laughs) this is getting really off tangent um so on air force one they have this special medical bed right so if the president needs to be operated on Mm -hmm. in flight so it's basically like a gimbal like so it keeps it perfectly steady Mm -hmm. even if the plane is going places so they can do like a procedure apply that thing to the whole shipping container so that shipping container is in there at ground level pressurization and it's also on a gimbal, so you don't know whether the plane's going up or going down or anything like that. The only thing you would know is when that plane is accelerating and decelerating because there's nothing we can really do about that. But that's okay because that's only takeoff and landing. Your customer base. The customer base is extremely so limited. I will give you that. But it would be like some oil, oil, you know, tycoon in the Middle East or something. I think we could take this out to the Middle East and pitch this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. But it would be like the ultimate yeah. show. Dubai, probably luxury. like Dubai. Someone from Dubai would do this. Yeah, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, one of these guys. They got it. Listen, um, yeah. Simon at todayifoundout.com, write to me. <laughs> yeah, that, that that guy who owns the skyscraper in India, right? Oh, the, the guy, guy whose house is, is it his house is a skyscraper or something absurd like this? Yeah, he's like, a, it's like a one of the world's tallest buildings or something, isn't it? It's like Nuts. insane. And then it, like right next door is is these like people just living on the I think if we're talking about the same thing, thing, it's in Mumbai and it's like the tallest personal residence. Okay, yeah. So yeah. I mean, it's got like a helipad yeah. on top and all of this stuff. It's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this guy, mm-hmm. whatever your name is, write me an email. We'll talk. I'll take 10%. Yeah. <laughs> and I want like 10 flight days a year. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, that yeah. was a really long tangent. Where were we? No, that, uh, that's, the, that's the episode for today. Oh. We have much, much more 
Uh, so so next week and um, the following weeks, we got a lot more space stuff. How many more pages do we got? Uh, we're on 12 out of 39. So uh, that's I think we got three more episodes, yeah. at least in this, maybe four. I, I personally, I'm keen to keep this going as long. Like, I like all the stuff we do, but space stuff is... Uh... This is where I got carried away. I have so much more. We could We could go probably 30 or 40 episodes deep, but I stopped... I stopped well before that. Uh, so I don't know. We'll probably get like seven or eight episodes total out of the whole thing. And even the bonus facts section might actually have to be broken up into multiple episodes because <laughs> there's a lot of bonus facts that are really good. So stay tuned for I'm that. I'm excited about it. And as always, guys, let us know how we are doing. You can do that with a review, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, which seems like an awful long time ago. Uh, we are doing a contest uh, when we get to 200 reviews on iTunes. We're going to go through all of the major podcasting platforms and pick someone at random to win a $200 or whatever that is in your local money uh, Amazon gift card. So drop us a review and don't just be like, hey, great show. Although obviously that's cool as well. <laughs> Let us know how we're doing. Like, do you like our series on space? Do you not? Do you? And if you don't like it, why don't you like it? And if you do like it, why do yes, you like it? Please, that, that would be useful. And or if you want to just give us private feedback, you can email podcast at todayifoundout.com. Or uh, jump on our forums, forum.todayfoundout.com. And uh, I think that's it, right? Anything else I need to mention? That's everything. Cool. See you all next week. Oh, you could just lick it off first, though. <laughs>